You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning. It's great to be together this morning and a lot of good stuff happening this week. If you're new, I encourage you to jump into both those opportunities. It's a way to, um, I uh, would say it's a way to learn. It's a way to grow. It's a way to meet other people at the church as well as we pray together, eat together, and learn together about finances. So uh, Wednesday and Sundays, please mark those opportunities. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I want to welcome you and say it's just great to be together this morning. We are teaching through the book of Acts, and uh, we've been kind of going like a chapter at a time recently, so we're just going to continue on that. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12 today. And uh, last week in Acts 11, we saw how sort of nameless folks uh, went into the area of Antioch, and they uh, shared the gospel with both Jews and Gentiles, and a church was formed, or a, a group came together. It will be a church. And we said that really the rest of the book of Acts is going to spring from that event because that church is going to send out Paul and those who go with him on missions, and the rest of the book is really about uh, Paul and his missionary journeys. But before we get to that, there is this sort of parenthetical chapter 12. Next week, uh, Saul will be sent out, Paul will be sent out from Antioch, but chapter 12 is this parenthetical uh, little description of what was happening in Jerusalem. So we go back to uh, Jerusalem, the Jerusalem church, which we've not been at for a while, and we find that they are again experiencing persecution uh, as in earlier chapters. But the difference this time is it's not the Jewish leaders that are persecuting Christians. It is the civil government, and specifically Herod. So we're going to see Herod and the church, or at least some of the church leaders, uh, in a little bit of a battle. And if this was a battle, if it was a fight, there's really three rounds. Uh, In round one, Herod wins, appears to win. Herod wins round one. Round two, Peter wins. And then in round three, we see that God always wins. God always wins. So we're going to read through this a section at a time. I'll explain kind of explain what's going on, and then we'll make some application that I I hope, I trust, will be relevant for us. Uh, So first of all, round one, uh, verses one through five, chapter 12 of Acts. Listen to this, the word of God for us today. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Round one, Herod and the church here. Now, you may be familiar with the name Herod. This is Herod Agrippa. There's more than one Herod. There's lots of Herods, several Herods in the New Testament anyway. And this is Herod Agrippa. He is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod who is present in the Jesus birth narratives when Jesus is born and he has the baby boys slaughtered. That is Herod the Great. His grandson here is just called Herod, but he's Herod Agrippa. 
And uh, he is made king over Palestine in these areas by a very famous, famous for his craziness, a very uh, famous Caesar, a very famous emperor named Caligula. So Herod grew up with Caligula. They were, they were friends growing up. Uh, he grew up with the next emperor as well, Claudius. And uh, so when, uh, when he, at some point, Caligula said, look, I'm going to give you this area. You rule as king over it. It is uh, Palestine and the surrounding areas. Now, Herod is known historically to have had a very good relationship with the Jews. He understood their law and he wanted to act in a way to keep them happy. Maybe not to keep them happy, but to keep peace. He wanted to act in a way so that since they were occupying Israel's land and ruling over them as the Roman authority, he wanted to act in a way that would show, hey, I'm, I'm with you. And so what he does is he starts to persecute a sect, what, what he would have viewed as a sect of Judaism, which was Christianity. And he does, he starts off by, it says, uh, uh, killing James, verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This means likely that he beheaded him. Uh, James was one of the original 12 disciples, and he is martyred. This is the second official sort of noted martyr uh, after Stephen in the book of Acts. So he kills James, and look what happens. Verse 3, when he saw that it pleased the Jews. So he's acting in a way that they're happy about this. We hate Roman rule, probably don't like Herod, but man, he's doing stuff that serves us as a constituency. He's taking out these Christians. He's resisting them by taking out their leaders, and they're excited about it. So he sees they're excited, and what he does is, verse 3, he proceeds to arrest Peter also. So he arrests another one of the leaders, one of the original disciples, um, and knowing that this will please the Jews. Now, this is the first time, we're in the book of Acts chapter 12, this is the first time since Jesus is arrested that the Bible records any problems with civil government. We haven't seen civil authority persecute the church until now, and this is very similar to Jesus' arrest. You'll notice it happens uh, at Passover, just like Jesus and he says that, you know, he delivers them over, verse 4, to four squads of soldiers. And it, he intends to, at pa after Passover, to bring him out to the people. Very similar. Happens at Passover, just like with Jesus, uh, except it was his grandfather, obviously. Um, or actually, that may have been a, even another Herod. Uh, at any rate, I'm not sure. So uh, he arrests him, and uh, he says he's going to bring him out after Passover. Bring him out means bring him out for sentencing and execution. There's not going to be some trial where he may get off. There's not going to be an appeal process. Uh, Peter's going down. So he guards him very carefully. He takes four squads of soldiers so that Peter is securely guarded and cannot get out. Uh, so that he will meet his fate right after Passover. So round one, well, it goes to Herod. He executes and imprisons two of the church's leaders, the original disciples. And yet verse 5 sort of foreshadows uh, something else may be happening, something may be coming. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. The church is praying. The church is crying out to God. And that's, a, that's just sort of a little sign something else is going to happen. And we find out what happens in round two, which is verses 6 through 19. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on the very night, 
Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up, quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them on its own accord. And they went out and went along the street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were experiencing. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, these things, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now, when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the centuries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So it's the night before trial and execution. Uh, Peter is sleeping. That's an interesting detail that Luke records, that he's sleeping. He's not staying up the, the night of, before his death, presumably his death. He's not staying up in a panic. Uh, he's not staying up in uh, anxious. The guy goes to sleep. And it's a fairly deep sleep because when an angel walks in and the room lights up, he still sleeps. The angel has to wake him up, which is really something else. I I think that's a picture uh, of deep rest in the soul, not only the body that one before their death could say, well, might as well get a good night's sleep and nothing I can do about this. And so he just sleeps until the angel uh, comes in and gets him going. The angel appears. The angel sort of struck Peter. It says, verse 7, the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him, struck him, get up, get up, you know, wakes him up. Uh, The angel wakes him up. The chains fall off, the text says. They simply fall off of him. He's chained to two guards on either side. Um, And the angel tells him to get dressed. He gets dressed. The angel says, put your jacket on, get your cloak, and follow me. And and so Peter does that. He just walks right out of the cell. And he doesn't even know. The text says he doesn't even know if this is real. Um, it, it It just seems surreal to him. 
Th- 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 how can this be happening? He actually th- thinks, Luke says, that he's having a vision. That this is really happening. I'm having a dream. I'm having a vision. So they walk right past, the text tells us, two groups of guards. And then when they get to the front gate of the prison, this is amazing, verse 10 It says that when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. You ever driven like you leave a a parking lot, apartment complex, something like that, and it's one of those deals where you just come up and stop before the gate, and it just moves in front of you. That's what's happening. They come up to the huge iron gate that separates the prison from the city, and it just opens automatically for them. They start walking down the street, and then the angel disappears. And I don't know if that was a gee thanks moment, because now he's on his own, and there is no angel with him anymore. Uh, And at that point, it says that he comes to his senses. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself. So he wakes up, and he realizes, oh, this is not surreal. This is real. I am free on the streets of Jerusalem. Verse 11 says, uh, when Peter came to himself, he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were experiencing him. Uh, uh, Herod's plan to capture and to kill Peter, it fails. Round two goes to Peter. He's Because of God, because of God's deliverance, Round two goes to Peter. He's walking around town, a free man, and he knows exactly where to go. He knows where the Christians will be gathered. He likely knows what they will be doing. They'll be having a prayer meeting. He knows where they would all be meeting. It's got to be a place big enough for everybody, and that's Mary's house. Mary is the mother of John Mark. We'll read more about him later. He gets involved in the mission going forward. It's evidently a big house because there is a gate outside. So there's a gate and then some kind of entryway, vestibule, something like this, and then there is the actual house. But they can hear him banging on the gate, and so they send uh, a girl. She's a servant here. Uh, Her name is Rhoda. It means Rose. So they send Rose out to see what's going on, and when she hears the voice of the person knocking, she is not a little shocked. She's overwhelmed. Now, the text tells us that she is overwhelmed with joy. She's verse 14, recognizing Peter's voice in her joy. She did not open the gate, but ran back in. She's so overwhelmed. She loses presence of mind. She runs back in and says, everybody, Peter is at the gate. And and he's still at the gate. And and the people say, no, he's not at the gate. Have you lost your mind? No. And they're going back and forth. Meanwhile, Peter's at the gate and he continues to knock, the text says. It's definitely a humorous situation that Luke portrays for us here. He continues to knock and he, he wants to get in. Uh, and so they, they speculate about who's at the gate. They say, you know what? I think probably, verse 15, it is his angel, they say. Now, some Jews believed that everybody had a guardian angel. This text doesn't uh, deny or confirm that. It simply says that somebody said that. We think it's his angel. And some of the idea around that was the angel may have looked just like the person. So they're saying it's his angel. The angel probably has the same voice, probably looks the same. But it's not really Peter. It's his angel. And so Peter's still knocking because now we're having debates about angels and who's out there. Meanwhile, he's still out there. And finally, they all come out. They see him, verse 16. They open the door. Peter continued knocking. When they opened, verse 16, they saw him and they were amazed. And there's a celebration. 
They're, Peter, they're so excited. He has to tone everybody down. Verse 17, motioning with his hand to be silent. He describes, shh, hold it down. I mean, Peter is an escaped, he's an escaped convict. And he's not really wanting to draw attention to himself. He's not really wanting the neighbors to all know what's happening in the middle of the night. Who are we welcoming? A guy who broke out of prison. You know, they're be searching for him. And so he's, he's really would like to keep this on the down low. And so he's like, shh, hold it down. Then he tells everybody the story of what happens. And he says, tell James, different James, James, the brother of Jesus, leader in the Jerusalem church, tell James and all the other people what happened. And then he just takes off. He just goes away. Well, it was a big problem the next day for the soldiers. Verse 18, they wake up. They can't find Peter. Herod asks them what happens. They really have no explanation for this at all. And they're executed. Typically, uh, guards in, in the Roman army, if you were uh, called to guard someone, especially someone uh, of notoriety like this, uh, if they escape, then you have to endure their punishment. That's what it was. Whatever they were in for, you get that punishment. In this case, it was death. And so they die. So Herod uh, kills the guards and then goes on his way. They never find Peter. He's on the streets. Round two definitely goes to Peter. Round three, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, And they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat on the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down. Because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing them with them John, whose other name is Mark. So the last verse there just ties into what happened in chapter 11. Um, they took a gift to the people in Jerusalem uh, because of famine, and now they, they go back home. Well, Herod goes to Caesarea, and evidently there's some kind of spat between Herod and the people of Tyre and Sidon. He's angry with them, verse 20 says. We don't know why, but they can't afford to have Herod angry with them. That's not an option because he provides food for them. So they say, we've got, to, we've got to work something out here with Herod so that we continue to get food. So they go to his assistant, a guy named Blastus. If you're going to have a kid and you're working on names, that is, that is a powerful name. I'm Blastus. It's like, wow, you just, that, I mean, you introduce yourself as Blastus and trust me, people will uh, scratch their heads. So he, they, they get to him and he gets them an audience with the king. It doesn't say, how did he give them an audience with the king? Maybe he just was persuaded and pleaded their case. Maybe they bribed him. We have no idea. But he's the assistant to uh, Herod, and he gets an audience with them. They, they want to listen. They want peace. Uh, and verse 21 describes how this all happens. So Herod doesn't just show up uh, like, okay, I'll have a meeting with them. He puts on his royal robes. He sits on his throne, verse 21, 
and he delivered an oration to them, a speech, probably like a, a formal speech even. So they want to come and have a conversation. Can we be at peace? We really need to work things out. We're sorry. And he puts on all, I mean, this is a power move. Shows up with all the royal robes, shows up on the throne and say, yeah, I'm happy to have a conversation negotiating with you. All the powers on his side. The the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, uh, actually records this event as well. So there's a source outside of the New Testament that records this event. Uh, Josephus adds some details that Luke doesn't mention. Uh, the scripture, we believe, is authoritative. Um, and so we believe what the scripture says is accurate. And uh, another historian may or may not be. But one detail he gives, which wouldn't um, be in opposition to what Luke writes, is that he says the royal robes that he wore were this bright silver. It was this whole getup that was bright silver and that when the um, sunlight hit on it, it just, it just shot off this, this array, this sort of a bright uh, presence from his robe. And that as he's giving the speech, they see the robe which is shining and they began to declare him a God. Josephus says the exact same. He said the same thing. This is a God. You are not a man. So they're, they're, they could just could be pure flattery. Maybe they're amazed by his speech. I don't know. I do know they need food. So in all of his splendor, they are saying, you are a God. And Herod receives their praise. He receives it. He doesn't resist it. He doesn't say, stop that. I am a man like you. Uh, verse 22, they were shouting the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory. He received this, this cry that they say you're a deity. He receives it and God strikes him down and he's eaten by worms. Now, Whatever that means, eaten by worms, it doesn't sound good. I'll tell you that. It does not sound like something you would want. It doesn't really tell us what it means. He's struck down, and then he dies in some way connected to worms. It doesn't say he immediately dies. He does say he's struck immediately, but it doesn't say he immediately dies. I did a little looking because I'm curious about that one, man. God killing people with worms. That, I mean, that's, that stuff, that'll preach. So I wanted to know something about it. And uh, I read where a guy has written a book, um, a, a British medical doctor has written a book about medicine in the Bible and gives medical explanation of what's going on. His explanation of this is people frequently had intestinal worms and uh, in this time uh, in, in the first century and um, that oftentimes the worms could uh, ball up with a blockage which was extremely painful. And so the struck down could have been this sort of event and then you die from it. But it's a very painful, excruciating death. The text does not say that. But the guy just, he said that's what it could be, eaten by worms. Whatever it is, this guy dies of worms. And we see in the lesson that God raises up and God strikes down. But ultimately, God always wins. Verse 24 says, the word of God increased and multiplied. And there is a sound lesson for all of us here to recognize that God really does rule. God really is in charge. God really does do what God wants to do. I love Psalm 115. When I first read this verse many, many, many years ago, decades ago, uh, it's just stuck with me as a promise. It, it, it's not written as a promise, but it is a promise in all situations. Psalm 115, verse 3. We've got this for you if we could put it up on the screen. 
Psalm 115.3 says that our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. The context of the psalm is pagans are saying, where is your God? We have idols. You can see our God, our statues. Where's your God? And the answer of the psalmist is, our God is in heaven. And as the NIV says, he does whatever pleases him. Uh, Your gods uh, have mouths but can't speak. They have ears but can't hear, the psalmist says. But our God does what he wants to do. God always wins. God wins not only by removing Herod, who was seeking to destroy the church leaders, but God wins because no matter what human opposition may arise, the word of God increased and multiplied. It will not, he will not be stopped. God is sovereign and he will spread the message of the gospel through his people. You can count on that. It may look bleak. It may look like he wins an early round, but you can be certain that God always wins. Herod kills James, yes, but the gospel multiplies and the message goes on. And oftentimes when there's persecution like this, it promotes the preaching of the gospel. There's a early church father in the second century, Tertullian, And uh, this is what he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You can kill us, but the gospel will only advance faster. It is the very seed. Every martyr is a seed in the ground and a harvest of new believers will come from it. It's a little bit like Herod thinks he can kick a anthill and destroy it. But when you do, the Christians go everywhere. That's what happened in chapter seven. In chapter seven, they kill Stephen. The the Christians are dispersed. And guess what? Gentiles in Antioch become Christians because of that. God will have his way. He always wins. His purposes stand. His mission progresses. Acts 1.8 will be fulfilled. He told them, when the spirit comes on you, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the outline of the book, and it will play out no matter what two-bit leader comes in and starts arresting people and killing people. It will not stop the purposes of God. And God wants us to see this and know this and believe it in our own lives. I'm going to give you just a few applications from this passage. These are familiar truths. I'm not about, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I'm not about to tell you something amazing that you've never heard before. But I want to point out three familiar truths in this passage that I think we need to remember. The first is this, remember God's sovereignty. What does that mean? It means he rules over all, Psalm 115, and he does whatever he pleases. He rules over all, and he can act however he wants to. He really is sovereign. His ways are always good, but we don't always understand his ways. And we see that in the passage. I mean, sure, Peter experiences triumph, but James doesn't experience triumph. James is killed. And I assure you, it didn't feel very triumphant for James's family for his friends, probably for the whole church in Jerusalem who grieved over the loss of one of their leaders. I mean, could God have stopped Herod from executing James? Absolutely, God could have. Look what he did with Peter. God could have stopped the execution, but he didn't. The doctrine of God's sovereignty leads us to trust God, to worship God, 
to persevere with confidence, knowing that he is in charge and he always wins ultimately. It does not mean, though, that we do not suffer loss along the way. You know, he's saying, oh, just minutes ago, I'm going to see a victory. That song is true as long as we define victory in God's terms. James saw a victory because Paul says to live as Christ, to die is gain. James saw a victory. When we use that kind of language, we just want to be clear that we're saying victory as God defines victory, which is all things work together for our good if we trust him. All things work together ultimately for his glory. If that's what we means by victory, absolutely. You can walk into every situation and say, I'm going to see a victory because my God is sovereign. The battle belongs to the Lord, we sang, and that is true. I love what David Peterson said about God's sovereignty in this. He said, without explanation, one apostle is executed, but another is rescued, teaching the church to live with the mystery of God's providence and to rely afresh in each situation on the mercy and the continuing care of God. Without explanation, we don't get it, it's a mystery. If you're gonna be a Christian, you're gonna have to be comfortable with mystery because you will not have all the answers. And to pursue all the answers and to say I must know all the answers is to make yourself a God like Herod. And you see how that worked out. There is a mystery, and we don't know, but in every situation, we re- I love Peterson's language, at every situation, we rely afresh on the mercy and the continuing care of God. Did James receive the mercy of God? Absolutely. The Lord embraced him face to face at the end of his life. So we rely on mercy and his continuing care. God, uh, uh, the doctrine of sovereignty is such a comfort because it tells us that God can rescue us. Look at Peter's situation. When rescue is humanly impossible, God can rescue. And the jail scene is totally a rescue. Peter is passive. He's asleep. The whole rescue, he thinks, is this a dream? He doesn't even know. He's not even clued into what's happening. He has to have somebody tell him, put your, put your pants on. We're going outside, okay? He has no idea what's happening. He's asleep. He doesn't wrestle through the chains. He doesn't pull a Houdini. It just says they fell off of him. They just fell off. He walks through two sets of guards and a steel gate, which no man could have broken through, opens automatically. The picture is God can rescue powerfully. And so whatever you are facing, God can work a miracle. And we should ask for God. We ask for God's will ultimately. But, the, but we should pray that God would move powerfully, miraculously, that he would answer our prayers. And if he does not answer in the way we hope or the way we expect, then we should be confident that he will sustain us and that he will use everything that happens for our good. That he will use everything that happens for our good. So remember God's sovereignty. Number two, remember prayer. There's a lot of prayer in this chapter. There's two passages that talk about prayer in this chapter. And the truth is, um, some people want to ask if, well, if God's in control and does whatever he wants, well, why shouldn't we pray? Well, the fact is, God's sovereignty is our only hope in prayer. If God's not in charge, then why are you praying to him? If man's will is in charge, then why are you talking to God if he can't intervene in situations, if he can't uh, act over people's will? The Bible teaches that, that, that uh, God has free will and man free, has free will, but God's free will can trump man's. That's just the clear teaching 
of Scripture. So if God's not in control, why are we having prayer meetings at Mary's house if God can't do anything? God is in control, and prayer features prominently. Verse 5, when they're in prison, there is earnest prayer for Peter made by to God by the church. When he's freed, he goes to a prayer meeting at Mary's house. And they're praying so passionately. They're, they're committed on the eve of Peter's execution to prayer. Uh, they're praying. God's already answered their prayer. And they don't even know he's standing at the gate. They can't even figure out how to get it. That's how powerful God is. They can't even figure out somebody let the guy in. And God has already answered their prayer. We sang this morning, when I fight, I'll fight on my knees. With my hands lifted high, oh God, the battle belongs to you. What great lyrics for this passage, isn't it? Oh God, the battle belongs to you. I love what Charles Spurgeon, he was a British pastor in the 1800s, a Reformed Baptist pastor, This is what he wrote about this passage. He said, as soon as Herod had put Peter into prison, the church began to pray. Herod took care that the guards should be sufficient in number to keep good watch over his victim. But the saints of God set their watches too. He means prayer watches. It doesn't mean time. Continually, therefore, the people of God pleaded at his mercy seat. Relays of petitioners appeared before the throne. Some mercies are not given except in answer to importunate, importunate prayer. Importunate prayer, I'm sorry. Importunate prayer. It's not a word we use often. It means, I had to look it up. It, it means to uh, sort of be persistent, almost to the point of being obnoxious. So importunate prayer is that they are praying and praying and praying. Listen to what he says. There are blessings which like ripe fruit drop into our hand the moment you touch the bough of the tree. But there are others which require you to shake the tree again and again until you make it rock with the vehemence of your exercise. For then only will the fruit fall down. My brethren, we must cultivate importunity in prayer. While the sun is shining and when the sun has gone down, still should prayer be kept up and fed with fresh fuel so that it burns fiercely and flames on high like a beacon of fire blazing toward heaven. They pray and God answers their prayer. So remember God's sovereignty. Remember prayer. Finally, remember God's mission. The the point here is really verse 24. The word of God increased and multiplied. The mission of God will continue through his people. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. That's such good news for us. Look what John Stott says about the mission of God in this passage. He says, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Such is the power of God to overthrow hostile human plans and to establish his own in their place. Tyrants may be permitted for a time to boast and bluster, oppressing the church and hindering the spread of the gospel, but they will not last. In the end, the empire will be broken and their pride abased. 
Man, we learn from this passage that the mission's not dependent upon Christian leaders. James, key guy, he dies and the mission goes on. The mission isn't stopped by opposition. Herod opposes the church, but his reign is brief and the gospel spreads despite his best efforts. A passage like this should give us confidence in God's power to bear fruit in any situation. There is nothing in your life, there is no one in your life, there is no circumstance in your life that has the power to stop the will of God. There is no one can, that can stop the fruit of the gospel. There is no one that can stop the fruit of the scripture in our lives. Remember God's mission, that the mission will continue on. And I wish I didn't have to already go to this, but I do. Let's remember this truth, these truths. God is sovereign. God answers prayer. The mission goes on. Let's remember this in an election year. Man, I'm already, this the past couple of weeks, man, I'm getting PTSD from 2020. I'll tell you, that was a rough time in church world. And 2024 may be rougher. I don't know. I'm not hearing a lot of reasonableness. The primaries have begun, and very soon, fear will be spreading through the church. This happened in 2020. I don't think the church, I think Christians were just as fearful, and at times more fearful than the world, people that did not know the Lord. We were fearful. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going to happen. That's going to happen. If this candidate's elected, if this policy is embraced, Christians will suffer. The church will be snuffed out. On and on. Friends, let's realize that's how politics works. This is the game of politics in this country at this point. Not that there's not some honorable people in politics, but this is how it works. The candidate finds a specific constituency. You go to that constituency and you tell them, here's all the scary stuff that's happening and will happen to you. And the only answer to protect you from that scary stuff, there's a thousand special interest groups. The Christians are one of them. All this bad stuff's going to happen. The only answer is you vote for me. Trust me. Put your trust in me, sadly, is what's happened so often, and I will take care of you. That's how politics works. Then you go to a different group, and you promise them the same thing, and then a different. And if you can promise protection and flourishing to enough groups and convince them, then you win. Then you win. I expect the rhetoric will be strong this year. And I don't know if things will go worse for the church. Listen, I want things to go well for the church. I care about religious liberty passionately. I pray for those things, and so do you. But I want to say this. Make no mistake, the gospel will not be stopped regardless of who is in the White House because Jesus is still on the throne. There's a third candidate. And he rules over everything. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be involved politically. We should. I'm not saying you shouldn't advocate for policies that you think uh, honor the Lord and help people flourish. You should. I'm not saying you shouldn't vote. Absolutely, you should vote. All I'm saying is that in every case, whatever happens, God is sovereign and the gospel will increase. God is in control. And he raises a leader up for a while, and then he puts them down. He can raise a leader up who kills a disciple, one of the original apostles, and then he can kill the same guy with worms. 
He can pull Peter out of a jail cell, but you know what happens? 20 years later, Peter dies a martyr's death. God is in control. Friends, as we enter this year, we must put our trust in God and not rulers or platforms. Play your part in the political process, but reserve all of your hopes for King Jesus. And reserve all of your fear for the fear of God. We're fearing candidates. We're fearing what this news report says. We're fearing this latest survey. We're fearing, we should be fearing God. Because God rules and God reigns. This passage teaches God is sovereign. It teaches us that prayer matters. Instead of panicking, let's pray for our nation. Tells us that God's mission will go on. There are ups and downs. We may have greater freedom as Christians 10 years from now. We may be shut down. I don't know. I pray we have greater freedom. But whatever happens, Jesus rules. Here's what this chapter teaches us. It teaches us to pray for God's miraculous power and to remain faithful in suffering, knowing that God's plan will ultimately triumph. Pray for God's power. Pray for God's deliverance. Pray for God's rescue and remain faithful in suffering, knowing that his plan will ultimately triumph because God always wins and everybody will see that one day. There's coming a day where everyone will acknowledge on their knee the lordship of Jesus Christ. They will recognize, whether they believed or not, they will acknowledge his rule and his reign. God always wins. Let not your heart be troubled, friends. Rest in your good, sovereign God. Pray to him. Trust him. By grace, be faithful to him because his plan will triumph in your life in our church, and ultimately in all of creation. We're going to close with communion. You know what communion tells us? God always wins. When Jesus is on the cross, round one, uh, it doesn't look good. It does not look good. All of his followers aren't even there. They're afraid. They're not even all there. But what happens is, ultimately, um, he doesn't, he, he, he dies, he's buried, but he doesn't stay dead. He's raised to life, the resurrection of Jesus, announcing his power and his victory and his glory over all, announcing God always wins. His body is shed for us, and so we receive, his body is broken for us, so, so we receive bread today, re recognizing that Jesus was crushed for our sins, that he died for us. His blood is shed to die for our sins, to pay for our sins, and he's raised on the third day to defeat death to defeat sin, to defeat the enemy, to demonstrate he rules over all. So trust him now, for he will be returning and rule over heaven and earth in person. Let's stand together, and we're going to have a victory time. It's a time of celebrating the greatness of God, that God always wins. And today in your situation, it may not appear that. So we always take communion by faith. For you today, it may be real faith because you go, man, I don't see God working anywhere in my life today. I'm struggling. Will you receive this by faith? Receive the bread and the cup, knowing that God forgives your sins. God promises never to leave you or forsake you. God promises to use all things for your good and for his glory. And God also regularly delivers us from situations. You pray for that as well. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. 
To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.